Sonic States Hello and welcome everybody. Sonic Talk number 61, 26th of September 2007. Uh, we've passed the 60 mark and I don't feel any different. Uh, I'm not f- about to retire, um, but this week, uh, neither are any of my guests, I certainly hope. Um, so let's say hello to Mr. David Spears from G4 Software. I knew you were going to say me first. I was just shutting the door. <laughs> ah, well, that's because you're at the top of the list, which it, even though I didn't ring you first, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it, it does list in alphabetical order on Skype. So uh, that's why you're first. I, I do like to mix it round. Sometimes I start at the bottom. Sometimes I start at the top. Today was the top. <laughs> it just happens to be you, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Obviously, G4 Software, makers of fine musical instruments and plugins. How is the musical instruments and plugins kind of thing going? Um, average to mediocre, I'd say. As good as that? Yes. <laughs> and that's on a good day. No, no it's, it's all right. It's all right. And the new baby must be um, close to, well, being pressed or printed or put to the shops or something like that? Yeah, we got first customer ship date of, uh, I think I said this last week, November the 5th, which I think is a brilliant day. Are you going to have some sort of firework display? Probably, yeah. Just one banger. We'll let it off in the office. Now, that would be pretty cool. No, I reckon that's going to be a good one for you because it sounds absolutely wicked, so... I know you always like to talk it down, but um, from what I hear, it's going to be a biggie. Fingers crossed. And uh, and Mark Tinley. Mark? Oh dear, I think we're going to hang up because that doesn't sound right. Mark? Hello. It sounded like you'd got a Tesla coil working, perhaps, in your front room. That's what I was thinking. Cool, I hope you recorded it. <laughs> I did record it, but I was actually trying to get a hello from you. How are you, Mark? You're back from the high seas, and thank you very much for your pirate message for last week. You really helped set the tone. <laughs> I'm, I've got to speak about something because I'm so excited about it. It's untrue. I've just got a Nokia N95 and it is so, so, so brilliant. It's untrue. It's so cool. Is that the one with the built-in Wi-Fi as well? It's got Wi-Fi, yeah. It's connected to the network in the house at the moment. So I, I can control my iTunes via Wi-Fi instead of Bluetooth now, which is really cool. But the video quality is just insane. It's just so good. Really? Um, yeah, really, really unbelievable. It's got a GPS built into it as well. Good Lord. So I, so I can take photos with it, film things with it. I can record. For the first time, it's got a decent uh, record time on the voice memo, so I can record for an hour, which means if I'm jamming around with an acoustic guitar, I can just sit it in front of me and um, you know leave it running until, until I come up with an idea. And... Uh, it saves things as WAV files as well, so I can just Bluetooth them into the laptop, bang them straight into Logic, make a loop out of the bit that I think's any good, and you know, carry on from there. It's fantastic. It's so cool. Just like to say, this podcast is not sponsored by Nokia, although we're <laughs> open to suggestions. Mark is making a very good and valiant effort to maybe get us that deal. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I, well, what can I say? I'm always, always really pleased to hear uh, when people have uh, technology that changes their lives and works for them and isn't an endless source of frustration. So this is a, a plus. So what the, what's the picture quality like? Has it take? Um, has it got a high megapixel camera in it as well? It's got. Um, it just happens to have a Carl Zeiss lens and a five megapixel camera. Good grief! So it's bloody unbelievable. It really is. And I was thinking about getting an iPhone because when we go to AES next year. Uh, next month, um, and third, fourth of October, I was thinking maybe I get an iPhone, but the camera's no good. But this sounds like it could be the way forward oh, the cam- for me. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like in in low light conditions. Maybe it's not brilliant because it doesn't have a proper flash on it. But I mean, the video camera, the quality on the video is just unbelievable. 
I mean, it's approaching DV. But it's really? not far off. Really, really, really? Yeah, really. Mm. Well, Mark, I'm happy for you. Are you going to say hello? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I suppose I should. Hello. <laughs> Back from your holiday. I, did you get to enjoy the pleasures of your Nokia N- M95 while you were um, on the high canals? No, I wish I'd had it, though, because it, it, another thing it has is it has a, a video output, and, there's, and it comes with the cable to plug it into the back of your TV, and we had the most appalling TV reception that I've ever seen. And if we'd just taken a whole load, we could have just stuck a whole load of videos in the phone and then plugged the phone in the back of the TV on the boat and watched videos. Wow, so that I is wish- cool. I'm sold. I'm going to get one now. Hold on, this podcast is cancelled. <laughs> I'm going down the shop. Um, oh, I'm confused now because I started with Dave Spears, but now Mark is at the top of the list. So that must mean, hold on a minute, can and Rich Hilton. That's the next person in the li- in the list. How are you, Richard Hilton from Connecticut? Very well, thanks. Good, thank you. Had any uh, deep joy from technology in the last week in your life? Let me think. Uh, pr- no, pretty much everything worked, which uh, is a beautiful thing. No purchases I, then. I no, I solved my uh, deep iChat problem this week. That was the most joy I had technologically. Well, we did a we did a little piece. Me and uh, Dave Spears did a little piece uh, on. Well, Dave did it, and I just kind of interjected with bungling remarks. But Dave showed us around Logic Eight. We came up with a cunning plan to use iChat and um, screen capture so that we could do a sort of conversational review or you know, overview of Logic 8. And that went very well, Dave, by the way. I'm still working on the edit, but it's not far off now. Excellent. Good. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, just us this week. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Did you anyone see that email I sent out from a chat called John Van Eaton? I yeah, did, yeah. Yeah. He's the, uh, John Van Eaton is the, he's, well, he describes himself as the Pro Tools tech for Nine Inch Nails, and uh, he's been working with them since 1994, and he's just said he started listening to the podcast at number 55, and since then has just gone way back to number one, and uh, he's, uh, he's thoroughly enjoyed it. His name rings a bell. Um, their keyboard player, Alessandro Cortini, is uh, one of our guys, one of our users. So, uh, John, if you're listening, say hello to Alessandro. I haven't spoken to him for a while. I have a friend who was a former uh, Nine Inch Nails employed person as well, but I have never met John Van Eaton, and I'm thrilled to know that we're providing him with entertainment. I wonder if that's the chap that I used to talk to on rec.pro.audio. I've got a feeling it might be, actually. So, hello, John. Thanks for writing. And this same singing voice now in the Golgumbas at ground level. It's the Audio Ease um, impulse recording of this place called Golgumbaz, which is in India, and it's like a sort of massive temple with it. It's got the largest, second largest dome in the world. Basically, Arjun Vandershoot was uh, sent a letter by um, a chap called Mr. Rahul Atul. I hope I'm pronouncing that right from Salapur in India, and um, said, "Come and record this amazing building." And uh, the long story short, eighteen months later, off he went, um, recorded his, uh, did his impulse responses in this place. And it resulted in this kind of twenty sec giant twenty second impulse response from the dome of this place. I just thought it might open a wider discussion about Altaverb in general because obviously it's an impulse response for Altaverb, which is the uh, Audio Ease's. Um, I would would I, should would it be fair to say it's an industry standard impulse response reverberator? 
I think that's fair. I don't know if you listen to any of the recordings, but they are incredibly long and very pure. I mean, but just, I can't think of an instance where one would use it. I mean, I wonder what, um, you know, would it be mostly for post-production, you know, in film work that you do something like that? Sci-fi inside of a giant ship's hull or something like that? I see it as a post-production tool for sure, if if anything. In other words, I don't see a, a whole lot of musical uses for... 20 second reverbs they use a lot of their stuff is um post isn't it i mean it's very i mean they their kind of impulse responses of all sorts of things you know from the inside of a bean can to you know telephone boxes various kind of vehicles and stuff they're perfect you know and that's what they that most of the bulk of their uses go towards as far as i understand great story it must have cost an absolute fortune just to get that impulse response but they essentially this place is like a um it's on a it's like a pilgrimage. People go there every day and they had to close it for seven hours um, so they could get the impulse recording. There were sort of people, queues of people waiting at the gates before they could get in. He said it got up to sort of 40 degrees even inside this giant temple, which is, that's pretty damn hot, I would say. But he says, apart from the sheer size of the building, the staggering number of suicides that take place inside the building, which I just thought, what a weird thing. So you go on pilgrimage miles and miles to this place and then, I don't know, I guess you jump down the stairs or something, but do you think perhaps the... Um, the kind of 20-second reverb just drives you insane and you just can't help but want to want to finish it all. It'd be pretty spooky, wouldn't it? It would be pretty spooky. Suppose it's for people who are looking for an optimal uh, acoustical environment in which to off themselves. I suppose it would... <laughs> but we, we shouldn't laugh, but uh, it would, uh, I guess, leave leave a slightly longer impression of uh, them, <laughs> them, them on the world than if they just jumped under a train. There is a magnificent QuickTime VR movie of the inside of the space on the mm. website. It's it's mm. one of the best uses of QuickTime VR I've seen. Just because you get you do actually get a sense of the massive volume of air inside this thing. It actually says audio ease on the floor, doesn't it? Yeah, it if, you does. go, if you look down on that. Yeah, it's true. If you QuickTime VR yourself down as though you're looking at your own feet, you see audio ease altiverb on the floor yeah i think they've done that to hide their tripod or equipment or something yeah i was going to say i mean on listening to it listening to the various different spaces that they've um com- com- uh, given you as reference to sort of compare it to the vienna concert house and the charles mm. notre dame cathedral um when they play the trumpet i think in the whispering gallery it sort of really gives away that it's not a very natural uh, it's not actually in a natural space and that has been recreated by something because I can hear like a flanging kind of effect going on through the um, the early reflections and stuff. And uh, yeah, I noticed that on I the actually, trumpet, but nothing else. Yeah, I actually think that the, um, I think the Charles Notre Dame Cathedral is a much, much nicer space. I mean, that actually sounds so real. It's unbelievable. I, I'm very impressed by that one. Not so impressed by this one, but I suppose maybe it sounds like that in there, though. I don't know. Well, they said in the whispering gallery there are like 10 reflections, you know, distinct. If you whisper, you can hear yourself 37 metres away, or you can hear, you know, it goes round. And so there must be some kind of point at which it kind of catches up with itself. But yeah, I thought the Vienna Concert House sounded particularly nice, particularly on the voice. It just was really, I really liked the, the sound of that. But I, I've, yeah. never, I've never used Altaverb. I think we got it for one of the systems... Um, but I've never really used it. I mean, a lot of people use it for the samplings of sort of old school uh, digital reverbs and, and plates and springs and what have you, don't they? Exactly. I mean, what Are I you- remember from, from um, Acoustic Modeler and the, the Sony thing 
is that you can change the length of the delay. So even though you may have an impulse response from a building with a long delay, you can then actually kind of filter off the end of that and shorten the response in yeah. software. So I'm just wondering if AudioEase have a control where you could still be in this place but kind of dampen the space. Mm. Yeah, they do. Decay control. They do, do they? They do, yeah. It may well be quite usable for something then. Thank goodness. And and like the original Sony hardware piece to which you refer, it's a big honking knob on the upper left-hand corner of the thing that allows you to adjust, adjust the delay time by percentage. But if I'm not mistaken, all they're doing really, and I guess we'll find out if I'm wrong about this one, but I think all they're doing really is uh, imposing an envelope to shorten it. Yeah. Well, I imagine some kind of interpretation yeah. data squashing that would be possible whereby you, you actually take the computed um, reverb and manipulate that rather than just impose an envelope on top of it. But I'm sure that would be incredibly CPU intensive. Mm. Uh, at why? Least. Why, would it? why don't you just time stretch the impulse responses? That would make it shorter. And then, and then theoretically, right. that shouldn't use too much CPU, and it should it should work actually. Maybe it doesn't sound good. I, I honestly don't know. Why is it that they? I mean, because they, uh, as far as I understand, I mean, they're real. Mar- they're market leaders in impulse response stuff. Is it because their stuff is so good, or is it because they've just got so many responses and libraries that you can choose from? I use it because I like it, and it's fun to use, and it's easy to use. Um, I like their interface. There is a huge library of IRs, but uh, most of the IR programs that I use right now, I believe, are somewhat cross-compatible in terms of being able to use some kind of standard IR file. Uh, I have a bunch of impulse response reverbs, and I use AltaVerb all the time. It's generally the one I use. I like using it. It's easy. It's fun, and they got great stuff. And I use it, as you said earlier... Uh, quite often as an emulation for classic reverbs like a 140 plate or a EMT 250. Um, but also it's incredibly useful for creating spaces around uh, spoken things. And I, I, I would think that if I were in post-production, I'd be, I'd be an IR lover. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, obviously my only real experience of IR stuff is with um, the, the logic reverb because that's my kind of environment of choice and that's pretty good but uh, i wonder if you can load those io responses in there hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, pretty sure. Sure, I'm pretty sure you can in fact i'm 99 percent sure that you can i think that there is a de facto standard for these things and it, they can import each other's data absolutely definitely hmm. the, a lot of the audio ease impulse responses that are provided are really stunning sounding they're not all terribly useful for music purposes like, uh, at least in the pop world that I mostly live in, uh, a church ambience is not usually the thing I need for a voice. But right. if you do solo the voice and stick it in that church, you sit back and go, wow, because it just it sounds amazing. And I'd love to hear the thing in 5.1, which I haven't heard. They have a whole separate set of 5.1 responses. Yeah, that would be pretty amazing. Perhaps that's it. I don't think that the um, Logic one's got that, has it? No, I don't they- think so. The Sony Acoustic Modeler doesn't have 5.1, as far as I know. Well, there's a TC, the TC System 6000, I think, does, but it's not an impulse response. I think it's, I believe it is a digital reverb of the old school, you know, as was described for years until these came along. Uh, these things are great, though. I love AudioEase's reverb. 
Well, if you want to check it out, just head over to audioease.com. I'll put the show in, uh, the, in the show notes and you can take a look. Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production. Producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles. Accurate professional studio monitoring systems. Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile motif range of music production synthesizers. And the latest N-series digital mixing studios. Featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk um, Imagine trying to run one of these impulse responses on the 1981 Osborne 1 with 64k of RAM and two 5.25 inch in floppy drives. Uh, this was another great story that uh, that came via, I just think, I found it um, via Dig, I think, and it's uh, it's basically a kind of a collection of flyers from uh, computers from way back, the first sort of portable computers from the 1980s. They looked like sort of giant oscilloscopes, and they were considered portable. Right. And uh, as I dug even for more, there's this place called oldcomputers.net, which seems to be populated by geeks who are kind of doing things like taking, I, I can't think of the model name, but these computers which basically take the whole room and have a single, a single screen and um, making interfaces so they can play kind of Star Wars on it. And that's kind of what they do, you know. And it, they, as you dig around, there is there are there are these huge collections of people who are kind of into old tech. Did anyone have one of these? Does anyone know anyone who had one of these? <laughs> what did it do? I didn't have any of these in particular. I do. I am uh, a little romantic and in the right mood, perhaps uh, a pint deep. I'm a pretty nostalgic guy when it comes to old tech, um, and I do enjoy talking about the history of these things and what we used to go through and the various Sisyphusian analogies that come up about what you had to go through to get music made back in the day when technology only did X. And uh, I do enjoy that. And uh, I didn't use any of these particular uh, portable personal computers, but they're uh, hilarious to look at. And uh, I do remember when people made statements like, I can't imagine anybody ever needing more than 64K of memory or... You know, stuff like that. And I, and I remember fondly the first time I got a 20-meg hard drive and, you know. The thing I really liked about these ads was that they kind of look a bit like the ads that they used to have for um, cigarettes from the sort of 1970s, don't they? They've got this kind of debonair, kind of ca- but smart but casual gentleman sitting by the pool or kind of, you know, walking, I, in, wearing, a, wearing a polo neck and a suit and sort of nonchalantly strolling along with the god knows how much this thing weighed, you know, looking like they can just set up anywhere and do their thing. The Digilog briefcase system looked particularly good with the, the thing that had the sort of modem plugs. It didn't have a modem, but what you do is you take the phone and you sort of like s- slot it into the these two holes on the top of it. And so presumably you can get into the mainframe and do stuff that spies do. I don't know. They must have been for pe- what people on the road and people who kind of would take their work home with them and stuff. I mean, I can't imagine who would have actually been given one of those things. To, to what would you use it for? I mean, because programming would have been hard enough, let alone on a five-inch monitor. Dave, you've been very quiet. Does this mean anything to you? Yes, probably too much. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I I love that. Uh, I think that Commodore Portable Executive sixty four is just awesome. Uh, in fact. It did. Uh, was exactly the same. I kind of span off on loads of tangents. Do you remember the Apple Lisa? Yeah. Which was another sort of semi-portable thing about the size of several breeze blocks. Um, but that was fascinating because that was in 1983, and that, cost, that took four years to develop and $50 million, and it was incredibly unpopular. Oh, dear. 
Absolutely fantastic. A 5 megahertz CPU. Brilliant. But the Commodore stuff was awesome. In fact, that was my first sequencing. A lot of people started on that stuff, didn't they? Yeah, that was my first sequencer on the old, on the, on the real 64, as it were. But then I remember having this kind of lust factor thing. Do you remember the Atari Stacy? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that was like a laptop thing, wasn't it? Yeah, with the monochrome. Yeah. Yes, I looked at that and I thought, wow. Yeah, mega bucks and a blue display, if I remember correctly. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and it had a trackball, didn't it? Mm. That's it. No, I've, I've had one of those. Have you? Oh, how was no. it? Was it any good? I seem to remember it broke all the time. That's what I remember hearing. Um... My first experience of it was that Atari didn't... I got them for Duran Duran, and Atari didn't want to give them to anybody because something happened with the batteries exploding, I think. <laughs> Nothing changes so, then, eh? <laughs> yeah. So what they actually did was they took the batteries out of the machines and sealed off the battery compartment with superglue. So they made them into portable computers you could only use if you were plugged into power. <laughs> so, That's kind of like so my laptop. About, yeah, all of us had that super glue thing. In fact, my ex-wife threw one at me once, if I remember right. <laughs> I'll bet you're glad it didn't have the battery in then. <laughs> yeah, it would have been heavier. <laughs> There's some brilliant old computers around, all of which are fairly useless now, I would imagine. I always really right. like the Mac Classic. You know, the, the, the all-in-one thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always yeah, liked yeah. those, and there was a colour one of those as well, wasn't there? I mean, lots yeah. of people... I remember lots of people used... Um, was it? Oh, Performer quite was early. Performer, yeah. And then uh, yeah. there was a guy called Dr. T, Emil Tokyo, oh, yeah. who had yeah. uh, software for the uh, Commodore 64 in the beginning, and then uh, uh, not too long after he had Mac software and PC software. I always, I always somehow thought of him as some software derivative of Mr. T, and I <laughs> thought, thought, his ad campaign, <laughs> thought his ad campaign should have read, I pity the fool who doesn't use Mac. <laughs> <laughs> What are you talking about? Fantastic. Yeah. I th- yeah. Mine was, uh, I think it was Sonus software on the, on the Commodore 64, which I think, uh, I think I've had this discussion reasonably recently, and that was um, Tim Ryan, founder of M-Audio. Really? Yeah, and he was one of the kind of movers and shakers behind this completely insane synth called the Conbrio as well. Was that like, like a, a, a kind of um, console-based synthesizer? Yeah, yeah, big kind of VDU on it and... Yeah, yeah, had a screen on it like this Executive 64 yeah. Commodore. <laughs> yeah, not not dissimilar. A bit bigger. <laughs> well, of course, uh, the Commodore, uh, was it the Commodore that later kind of, you know, was the basis for like the early video VJing and video sampling and all that kind of stuff as well? I mean, it was a fairly advanced system, if I'm right. Oh, I yeah, recall somebody sh- showing me an amazing demo of video capabilities on the short-lived, I believe it was called the Commodore Amiga. That's the it one. Was the, um, and some people really embrace that for video production. I, I must have come with a pretty intense set of uh, effects and tools and stuff because I remember, what, like I said, somebody blew me away with a demo of the thing. I remember um, Disney used to use them in their kind of school, you know, in their kind of animation training school. Oh, the Amiga? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. But never caught on with music, really. I used a Steinberg Pro 16 on a Commodore 64, which was absolutely fantastic, actually. Mm. That was the, no, I was just thinking because I remember working with Pro, Pro 24 and not enjoying it quite so much. Oh, Pro 24 was awful. Ah. Pro 24 was like a step 20 miles backwards from Pro 16. I mean, it, Pro 16 was a pattern based sequencer where you made things up in 
in blocks like verse chorus whatever and then you just chain them all together and said i think i'll play them in the order one two four five three two one two one two three and six for the outro and you know you type it all in and press play and off it went i used the commodore pro 64 with an akai s900 and managed to construct entire backing tracks in in just that and then when the s1000 came out actually i personally think that the s1000 was a step backwards because um, if you sampled anything at a lower sampling rate, it didn't sound as good. So you had to use the highest sampling rate all the time. So in terms of how many seconds of stuff you could get into an S1000, it wasn't as much as you could get into an S900. Because um, uh. you, you could go way down on sample quality in an S900, and because of the compounding thing, it actually still came out sounding okay. Even cymbals and stuff. You could sample them at like 10 kilohertz and they'd still sound fine. Did you lust after any of these giant um, laptops? They do look kind of, well, they, they wouldn't be laptops. You couldn't put that in your lap, could you? You'd probably end up with kind of some kind of RSI or broken legs or something. It looked like it weighs a ton. Okay, I've actually got something in my garage which I found. I went to um, Colchester to pick up a bike and I had the bike on the back of the car and I think the baby needed to go to the toilet. So we pulled off up this little side alley and stopped. And I got out of the car and there was this blue kind of thing lying on the ground that looked remarkably like one of these. So I'm going to have to go in the garage. And, I, of course, I saw this thing and thought, I've got to collect that because it looks like it must be something useful. I thought it was some kind of an oscilloscope. But now, in, on reflection and having seen these, I actually think it might be a portable computer. Because it's wow. got ports on the back and everything. So, yeah, or it might be a piece of test equipment. Or it might be one of the Atari Stacys that Dave, Dave Spears talked about. Oh, classic. Right, um, shall we move on? I can guarantee you, if I had had one of these, my dad would still have it somewhere. I went into a room, well, I went into his kind of place where he keeps stuff and discovered loads of computers that I'd given to him years ago that I'd actually forgotten about, including the Mac Classic, um, really old laptops, really old Mac laptops, uh, Performer, 470 or something absurd i mean just stuff i was looking around going oh my god i'd forgotten all about that yeah it's terrible that i mean parents because i i don't think i i don't know what it is i mean obviously i'm heading in that direction too but you know the cycle of technology and you know, i gave my mum my old mac laptop and I, when i mean old i mean it was the first color laptop you know like really really old i can't remember what even make it was and no, uh, after I'd worn out, and she used it for ages and ages and ages, and after a while, it was just, it was just terribly embarrassing because I go around and she say, I'm, "I can't get it to do this," and I'm going, "It's twenty years old. You know, it's just <laughs> absolutely no way anything is ever going to work. I'm not going to be able to download anything. Nothing will. It's almost totally useless." I'm glad to say now she's got a a PC with Vista on it, which perhaps is a step backwards in some respects. Anyway. Technology, though, wonderful. I'm sure we'll um, we'll look back on uh, in another ten years and laugh at the uh, at the current technology we've got now. Or well, probably uh, yeah. ki- kid kids who are much younger than us will do that. The Nokia N the Nokia N95. I'll be laughing at that. Won't yeah, it looked like one of those brick 1980s mobile phones with a curly lead. Right, <laughs> Brett. It's 1986, David Bowie from the movie Labyrinth. Yeah, I know. So. You showed your penis to the man from the greeting card company. That was your idea. I didn't mean something like that. I only meant something like, I don't know, wear makeup or... Yeah, I was wearing makeup. I had lightning bolts on my wanger. I meant on your face, Brett. On your face. So have you got any more advice? No, I don't have any more advice. I've given you all my good advice. 
I actually have totally lost confidence in my ability to help people. I'm useless. Jermaine actually thinks that maybe you're a figment of my imagination. I might as well be, Brett. I might as well be. Yeah. Anyway, Brett, I have to go. Where are you going? I'm going to a party. I'm already 20 minutes late. Sounds cool. Where's the party? In space, Brett. In space. Bellies in space What you doing out there? That's pretty freaky, Bowie. That was um, the the flight of the Concords, which uh, is a sort of another of the. Uh, it's it's in the vein of the Mighty Boosh. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, but it's a kind of musical parody, and they're, they're kind of, as far as I understand, they're like a folk duo who started out doing musical sketches with all sorts of parodies on different styles of music. And if you go on YouTube, there's tons of their stuff, and it's getting really popular. And I just thought it was um, pretty funny, and I just wondered whether anybody else shared my uh, admiration of their humour. Although when I listen to it there, it doesn't translate quite as well. You have to see the video. It's absolutely brilliant. I got that it was David Bowie straight away, actually. So yeah, I haven't had a chance to look at any of them yet, so I don't have a lot to say about it. But I think I might have to... Um, Are you, were you a fan of the Mighty Boosh? Uh, no, I don't even know what that is. Is it something I would have seen on television? I've got to enlighten you, Mark. They've got a current TV show in the UK, I believe, isn't it? I think it's on Channel 5 or Channel BBC4 or one of those kind of iterations of the normal channels. Uh, okay, I wondered where it came from. Uh, no, not familiar with them at all. A um, couple of them did make me laugh, though, quite a lot. <laughs> they're very, um, they're very dry, aren't they? I, I particularly liked the. Um, there's a rap-based one, which was uh, the rhinoceros and uh, hip hopopotamus, who are the, they're these two kind of fictional, aka <laughs> uh, rappers from New Zealand, and they do a kind of rap, and it's kind of quite funny as well. But maybe it's just me. Considering none of you actually laughed greatly when I played it or anything, then, you know, I think you're going to have to go and find it for yourself uh, before I just um, shrivel up and die. Right, anyway, let's move on to something else. Now for all of you teenagers, the long-haired Steppenwolf rock and roller. So let's have a fine break. That's right, folks. It's time uh-huh. to pick up your Easy Rider memorabilia. Uh, apparently, Mr. Uh, Peter Fonda is uh, is putting up some of his Easy Rider memorabilia up for grabs, and I just had a bit of a dig around and know that you can get the gold Rolex, um, not the Ray-Ban Olympian shades, which were the very cool sunglasses that he wore, um, and various other bits and bobs that you could get. Um, but when, when I was looking into it, I was checking out the soundtrack, and there was obviously Hendrix and Steppenwolf, and I didn't realise that... The lyric in that Born to be Wild bit there, which was, I think, um, a TV appearance on one of the... That was Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan, I knew it probably Legendary was. Legendary impresario and television host. But anyway, the phrase, Heavy Metal Thunder, from that particular song, actually spawned the, you know, the name Heavy Metal for kind of hard rock music. Mm. And I didn't know that. So I thought, there's a good thing. Uh, as I, and as I was looking through, the, I noticed that Phil Spector was also in that movie as uh, somebody called Connection. Wow, uh, I didn't remember that. No, I, I, I just, I just yeah. happened to see that. Maybe it was a cameo part and he was kind of like a dude in it somewhere. Mark Tinley, I know you're into motorcycles. I, I imagine you're probably familiar with the film. I am, yeah. Anything you fancy from that? Um, no. <laughs> no. 
I mean, I love the film and I love the bikes and I like the whole ethos of it. Although, again, now that I'm 44, it all seems somewhat childish in a funny sort of way. But um, there's nothing that I, I mean, I can't, maybe some, no, no, actually, no. I seem to remember, this is going back a bit, did anyone, there was a series recently all about the monkeys. And it just sort of went into kind of how they were, you know, who, when they made the films, the sort of people that kind of put the whole thing together. Now, if I remember correctly, at the end of that, the guys who had essentially kind of put the whole monkeys phenomenon together in terms of their their films, they went on to, um, with the money they made from the monkeys, to produce Easy Rider. I remember that, yeah. That is true, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm, I thought so. I can't remember their names, but I do remember there was a story about um, when the monkeys got a bit stroppy and artistic. Um, the producer of the film, who looked was a very um, charismatic-looking chap, um, the manager came in and was sort of telling them that they must do things this way and that way, and he just threw him down the stairs and told him to get lost, and if you didn't want the movie, then they'd get somebody else, which sounded kind of pretty extreme. I'm not the sort of thing you'd get away with in today's Hollywood, I wouldn't imagine. Now, as I recall, the monkeys made one movie. They had a television series that was on it. which yeah. the whole concept was based, but they made one movie that was very uh, interestingly named head oh yes i think i remember that yes yes was jack nicholson in that he was yeah no 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 i was just thinking it would have been an interesting meeting of people wouldn't it the monkeys and jack nicholson around that era well apparently frank zappa appeared on the television show at one point wow wow (laughs) it's probably anyway um so nobody wants any of the memorabilia uh mark quite liked the film dave what do you think (laughs) Does, isn't no, there any room in your dad's garage for one of these uh, one of these cycles? There certainly would have been for the motorcycle. Yeah, um, no, I was more. I was kind of wading through it, thinking, mm, yeah. But there were no pictures of his sister naked, which is what I'd really quite like to have seen. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure if you search the internet long enough and hard enough, you may find something that satisfies your quest. Right, this kind of culminated a lot of James Dean and Marlo Brando and Marlon Brando kind of ethos into this counterculture late sixties uh rebellion thing, anti war rebellion thing. And uh and the thing uh, that my fa- the thing that my parents were frightened of actually. Don't speak to men with long hair, I seem to remember. <laughs> sneering at like hippies in the new forest as we were driving through the new forest anybody that looked vaguely hippie like was like don't look at them don't speak to them i mean i was probably like you know 1969 i would have been six years old i suppose you wouldn't have spoken to them anyway would you i mean being a good lad you don't speak to strangers (laughs) at that age generally mind you i'd I'd like to see that you have now got really long hair is that kind of your rebellion (laughs) (laughs) you're still in your rebellious uh, phase no i think i'm in my if I don't grow it now one last time, it'll be too late, Faze. <laughs> <laughs> I can yeah. understand that. I wish fully. I'd done that myself. Although the I weight t- of the hair is probably pulling it all out. Yeah, well, you <laughs> want to watch out. If you hold it back in a ponytail, then you could be in trouble. It starts to recede from the front. That's, That's what's going on. I'm yeah, yeah. God. Yeah. Have some glue some back on. No, what front. you want to do is just back comb it instead. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's I the only way like to reverse that. the process. <laughs> What's that guy called? The um, Spirit in the Sky? I'd look like him, wouldn't I? Norman Greenbaum, yeah. That's it, yeah. Mm. Oh, no, doc- or Doctor and the Medics, even. He also was a back Oh, yes, no, yes. Excellent. Well, anyway, so uh, Easy Rider memorabilia up for grabs. Obviously, that's been... We were going to use that last week, but Mark wasn't here, um, and we thought it would be one for him. Um, but as it, is, as it is, he wasn't really interested in any of the items. So, um, <laughs> sort the lot of you. 
I'd like to talk about the worst jobs in rock and roll, just purely, not from the the sort of flippant suggestions that they have. This was a, it was on a place called Blender, which is kind of a flippant magazine. And they have, you know, the worst jobs in rock and roll listed as Pete Doherty's lawyer, Snoop Dogg's bodyguard, Guns N' Roses tour manager. Now that would be a pretty tough job, I'd imagine. And Britney Spears hairstylist, which that's just a bit of an unkindness. But I I just wondered um, if anybody had any particular, so maybe from experience, um, worst jobs in rock and roll. Dave Spears, I know you've spent a lot of time on the road, so I know you're going to have at least one suggestion. Um, but no, no, I quite like all those kind of weird and excessive things. I just think they kind of make it all... It is a circus, isn't it? And the more yeah. circus-like it becomes, the more entertaining it becomes. I, I, one of the one of my favourite quotes from Chris, who spent a while with Emerson and Wakeman and all of those guys, as he said, you know, Emerson was just sort of so hat-stand that it just made him laugh constantly. And at the end of the tour... Keith said to him, you know, Chris, you're the, you're the happiest person I've ever met. You know, you're always smiling and whatnot. You know, what, what's the secret? And Chris said, well, I'm just laughing at you most of the time. <laughs> did, he get a, I, did he get a second tour? Uh, probably, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, I think people like that are so used to kind of yes men constantly that actually if you turn around and tell the truth occasionally, they kind of, it's sort of refreshing. I think you're probably right. But, I mean, just from an industrial point of view, you know, I mean, a show goes on, there are all these jobs, there's obviously you've got to drive to the gig, there's all of that stuff. Which one of those would you least fancy? Or one that you haven't done that you wouldn't want to, I suppose? Maybe maybe you put it that way. I don't don't like um, heights, so I really wouldn't want to be a lampy, and they're borderline insane anyway. So, yeah, I don't think I'd be a lampy. Probably a tour manager as well, because they just get nothing but grief from the moment the tour kicks off. Okay, worst job... I think I've seen is session drummer on a tour because the session drummer is not in a band or not in the band. So they've got none of the adoration that the the band are getting. I'm talking about Duran Duran session drummers, obviously, and has to play a two and a half hour set or two hour or whatever set has to come to the sound check. The band don't go to the sound check. So his, his day starts relatively early. He's got a really, really grueling job. And at the end of it, he's probably getting paid the same as me. So I, I don't think I'd want to do that job. I, that always scares the hell out of me, that the kind of the professional depth where you just come into and whatever happens, you know, you're coming in because, you know, there's been a last minute change of personnel or somebody's hurt themselves or whatever. And you have to fulfill and fill the shoes of whoever it is that's missing at very short notice and just do it. That's something that I think I would probably but that's because I have no technical ability, so it prob- that's why it frightens <laughs> me so much. Uh, but if it works well, it can work brilliantly. You are the man. Yes, I suppose so. There is that. Uh, uh, very slightly off topic. I had to learn 13 songs in 24 hours for a band. Uh, I was drumming at the time. And uh, I just went to bed with the Walkman on, went to the gig with the Walkman on, and played the gig. And you could see that the, you know, the management were pacing around nervous as hell because the other drummer had buggered off beforehand and they, they had no idea. And uh, when the gig finished, the look of relief on their face. And actually, it was brilliant because I ended up getting the gig full time and getting you know expenses and all the rest of it for all rehearsals. And the rest of the band were really pissed off. If you're a drummer and you go on tour and you do three, sort of three or four shows a week and you're playing for two hours every night, doesn't it get really, really tiring? Yeah, they always but, look knackered. Drummers always look absolutely, com- I can't say the word, um, like completely burnt out after like no time at all. And they lose loads of weight and they sweat tons. And you sort of, 
I don't know. I worry about them. <laughs> Bless. Actually, that would come in quite handy at the minute. <laughs> yeah. maybe what you need is a good tour dave a dip- yes i do yes, lose a couple of pounds sweat it off rich is that your experience i mean i imagine um perhaps the drummers that you're working with at the moment aren't um aren't looking tired and haggard and burnt out but perhaps you're not on long tours i mean have you done long tours and not in the not in the order of months at a time mm. um but we have done tours and uh actually when you when we do our japan run at the blue notes uh those are two shows a night, six nights a week, and so you get pretty tired doing that. Um, I have to say that I think the worst jobs in rock and roll are a lot better than some of the worst jobs outside of rock and roll. Yeah, well, that's a fair point. As I, as I listen to Mark uh, sort of describing my job in the band I'm in, <laughs> when he <laughs> refers to the drummers from Duran Duran, I think to myself, uh, I'm thrilled just to have the opportunity to entertain people i mean we all come off looking you know soaking wet and and exhausted in our band and there's 10 of us um so that's a lot of soaking wet um the worst part of that bit is just getting from place to place we we like to joke in our band that uh they pay us to get here we play the show for free because it's fun to play the show yeah yeah i see what you mean that's easy and fun it's all uh all of what you go through getting there that's uh the least i would agree i mean yeah, I think I would agree with you there, Rich. But I don't know, but you know, this whole worst jobs and, you know, uh thing, I don't know. There are people people come up to us on the road, "Oh, you must be so tired. Oh, it must be so hard on you." And I'm always like, "I I want to laugh." It's like there are people who, you know, carry concrete block for a living. This is not <laughs> this isn't bad. As bad as it gets, it doesn't get that bad. I mean, I I always feel sorry for the kind of main talent, you know, sometimes because the singer or the the front person of the band you know, as well as doing the show, has to do all of the press and all of the other stuff as well. And that, I mean, I've done a bit of that, and that is really, really tiring when you've got to do right. You know, you're doing 20 interviews, and then you go to the show, and you're getting ready to do that. And that's, you know, you sort... I think in that situation, you sort of need the adrenaline to be able to keep you going, you know, because otherwise you'd just be asleep by half past nine or something. I mean, it's that must be very difficult, as particularly for someone who's actually on the ascendant, you know, when it's, it's ludicrously demanding. I mean, I know uh, Dave Spears, you've probably seen that happen a number of times. I mean, that must be very, very difficult. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I've seen that with uh, quite a few people and uh, it does, it de- completely detracts from the actual gig, which is really what they're about. You know, the press just kind of soaks everything up, soaks up all their energy. And uh, yeah, no, I've seen that affect people in an adverse way. Definitely. It's very hard. I think it's very hard work. I mean, maybe I'm kind of over-dramatizing it a bit, but I just think, you know, when you hear of people going, oh, they get, they're really stroppy, they're really this, that, or the other, and it's like, well, actually, <clears throat> you know, you might find yourself feeling somewhat similar or cope with it a lot worse if you were in their position. The banal questions as well. So is that why you didn't do any press, Nick? No, we did. We did a, a big European, well, I say big European, we did a couple of weeks in Europe. Um, this was going back sometime, 1990-something. And, um, we, but they really made us work. So we do, we did however many countries we did. And then we just spent all day in a hotel room waiting as they wheeled people in. I think one day we did like 13 or 14 interviews, you know, then we went to Finland and did a load. And you, you could sort of understand why bands just get drunk and cause havoc because it, it's, it's the only way to make it interesting because it is so dull. After you've answered the same question for the 10th time in one day, let alone the hundredth time in a week, it's very, 
it's very difficult to remain gracious and remember how privileged you are to be in that position. I mean, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Couldn't you answer the question differently every time? <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose you could, but then it, it sort of, you can't be seen to be taking the, taking the piss out of people. I because suppose that's, so. Well, actually, you wouldn't, it's for your own press and promotion anyway. And then, and those other things that you've got to do, station IDs, I don't know if anyone's ever had to do those, when they say, can you do us a few, at the end of the interview, they say, can you do us a few IDs? And you have to say, hi, this is Nick from da-da-da, and you're listening to KDFM da-da-da-da-da on 602 point... And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, blimey, the memories, yes. Yeah. Local radio, they're the best ones, aren't they? You have to do a Ask- lot of that stuff as well. I mean, you know, I, I guess I'm not complaining, but I think a lot of people don't know what you have to do. I mean, I guess people listening to this show may well do, but and obviously all you guys do, but I don't think the wider public, or, you know, perhaps not the not-so-wider public, under, knows at all what what is what you have to And the to problem do. is, if you try and spice it up and be flippant, you know, those are the quotes that come back to haunt you. Yeah, exactly. Right. I don't think you can make the case to people that our jobs are all that hard. I just, I just don't, I don't think they're buying that. <laughs> so, so I've, I've got it for you then. The worst job in rock and roll is being a husband or being a father. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably very, very true. Good because going, I think, Mark. I mean, anybody who tries to do this job is, it, it's a very, very fine balance between any kind of family life and and doing this job you have to have a very understanding partner and very understanding family and if you don't it falls apart yep yep i think that's very true on that sort of rather spiritual and um you know good well good point well made shall we shall we call it a day yeah uh, next week uh i won't be here because on the wednesday night um i'm flying to new york on the thursday to go to the aes where i hope to be able to say hi at the very least to rich hilton who i think will also be there um, but I'm not doing a podcast because it's my partner's birthday the night before. So there you are. And if you were in, if you were still in the band, the record company would be saying, "No, no, no, sorry, you've got to do this interview." Yes, <laughs> and you're probably right. <laughs> in the meantime, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Mr. Rich Hilton from Connecticut. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Uh, Dave Spears from G4 Software, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Mark Tinley from Hertfordshire. I'm not from Hertfordshire. Are you? Where is it then? I'm in Cambridgeshire. Cambridgeshire. <laughs> you, I'm sure you said Hertfordshire last time. Well, thank you very much, Mark, from uh, Oxfordshire. Cambridgeshire. <laughs> oh, jeez. I'm going to stop now. Uh, shall I just say, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Just say you're welcome. You're welcome. And remember, folks, comments are always welcome. We'll be happy to read them out or play them or however they arrive. Uh, you can email them at, to sonictalk at sonicstate.com. We can just take words or MP3s. Or if you've got Skype, uh, you can call us on Sonic Talk, the handle Sonic Talk. Oh, we've got an answer phone there. Just leave us a message. Uh, we've got Skype in numbers in the US for that. Uh, so dial 312-376-8089 if you're inside the US. Or if the UK's closer or you're in the UK, 0207-870-8616. Remember to dial your country code before those if you're outside either of those countries. That's US telephone number 312-376-8089. UK 0207-870-8616. Thanks for listening. Sonic. States. Let's call.